Great stop here. Can Clint Dempsey score? Yes! The Indians ahead! Oh, he's trying to find him. It's broken for Fabregas. Now it's Iniesta. This is it! Chin! Chin out! Mezzanazzi! He's looking for three goals. He's got one. So he's right side here. Oh, I say! It's amazing. Has it gone over the line of the back post? It has. It's three. And he has them. Here they are, looking for number five, with Philippe Albert, oh! Kadira, 5 now. 5 it's 5! Hello, welcome to Football Fives, the podcast that didn't sing three lines just in case. We're doing a tournament retrospective this week, it's World Cup 2018 obviously. I'm Chris Neat, and I'm joined first by a man whose words about this World Cup would reach as far as the Kremlin if you laid them end to end. It's Daniel Story. All right, mate. Hello, mate. You all right? Yeah, been busy, have you? Yeah, been busy, yeah. But it's a World Cup, isn't it? So we've all been... It's a nice, fine. It's a good excuse to watch it. Yes. Busy and I'm just insanely the... jealous of people that were uh, in Russia watching it. Next up, we have Ryan Keeney, who's done more park runs than you've had hot dinners. How's it going, right? Hello, Christopher. You all right? Yeah. 50 park runs, Ryan. Uh, yeah. That's 50 yeah, right. more than me. That is 50 Saturdays where I've got up and um, showed up to a park somewhere in the country at 9 o'clock. I can't, I can't lie in, basically. Well, not <laughs> if you keep going to parks, you won't, no. And finally, we have my co-host on the Styles Council, which you can find at England Podcast on Twitter. It's David Hartrick. Hello. How's it going? Long time? No speak? Yeah, it's been all of about, what, 16 hours, something like that? Yeah, if if that. Um, yeah, it's it's been heavy going with the World Cup. It's been a real pleasure. And um, as we vaguely established after Euro 2016, we like to do these tournament retrospective podcasts, but when they happen while we're alive uh, as a podcast, we'll go straight in at the end of the tournament and do those. So we're in Russia 2018, uh, and we will begin, Dave, with our usual beginning question question one this week is how did you assess England's tournament and and we'll start briefly with qualifying uh, which was a breeze Dave oh of England being in the World Cup I've barely caught it um yeah the the qualifying was sort of handled England did exactly what they do which is have a huge failure in a massive tournament and then get into qualifying for the next tournament and do it with sort of minimum of fuss really and Obviously, Southgate came in and started to try and phase out some of the old ideas and bring through different players. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what the rest of you think, but I don't really think you can criticise qualifying too much at all. No, well, eight wins, zero defeats is pretty good, really. Uh, came very close to a defeat against Scotland. That was quite a, a finish to a game that at Hamden. Um, and really, after that point, England just cruised. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and but that is what England do, isn't it? And I'm, I'm sure. I mean, that's something Dan has said when we've talked about qualifying for previous tournaments. We are exceptional qualifiers. The issue comes when we get there, isn't it? Yeah, two two managers, Dan. Yeah, and it's quite easy to forget after. Every you know the shenanigans and the journey of the last couple of months that 
Sam Allardyce started this campaign. There was that um, picture of him in a William Hill sponsored pub with Robbie Savage playing pool and eating a burger, which, I mean, if you're looking for a metaphor for how much he cocked it up in losing that job before a World Cup qualifying campaign, then then there's your answer. Um, But it's only in retrospect that you are so appreciative of of who we have as manager now rather than who we could have had. Uh, I don't think Alas would have been a disaster in this World Cup, but I don't think we would feel like we're moving in the right direction like we do now. When you look back at how much has changed since that um, that game in Slovakia, it's really strange to uh, pick out how much of that has changed after the qualification process. Yeah, it still felt like England when we qualified, and it still felt like some of the old ideas were were really in charge. And actually, since that point, Southgate has really put his stamp on this team. You know, the the, the system at first team level became the system largely post qualifying day. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It it's sort of easy to forget that the the three at the back is not. Is still not a system that our players are completely natural and familiar and have been playing for a long time. And but I think that sort of really speaks to the testament um, of how it's been brought in by Southgate and how several of those key players have suddenly looked a lot more comfortable in it. Yeah, I think three at the back is a system that benefits collectives. You know, teams that are short of individuals, and that's where England are at the moment. And it proved to be a bit of a masterstroke. And that run of friendlies leading into the World Cup, you know, you, I, I, I don't read a massive amount into friendlies, but you get the draw with, what's it, France, Germany and Brazil. And something was happening. I, I don't think anybody dare speak of it because I, there was just zero chance of getting any sort of hope up for this World Cup whatsoever. But it did feel like in the, that sort of six months before the World Cup, that suddenly England did start to make quite a bit of progress in quite a short space of time. And then, you know, that pays off when we get there and get into those group games. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. All right. Hello. Um, The tournament itself. I'm fascinated by how you've uh, viewed it from a non-English perspective, because to be quite honest, I haven't spoken to anybody non-English for a month. Hmm. Uh, okay, fair enough. Um, so my wife and I had a pretty not in- intense, isn't the right word, but we we genuinely had a conversation about how far we wanted England to get in the hours before the tournament. We were kind of, or oh, maybe the, I think it was the day before, um, of how far we'd like England to get in a kind of living in England. She's Scottish, I'm Northern Irish. We don't want England to win it. Um, and we, we kind of settled on reaching the final or being around on the last weekend and then kind of going out with a whimper would have been ideal. Losing the final 5-0, great. Uh, <laughs> you know, not really, the third place playoff being over after four minutes, perfectly fine. Um, the kind of atmosphere that there was around England and working uh, in Manchester and in Leeds was great. It was a joy to be part of that and the, it helped that the weather was probably the best it's been in, in years um, and I don't know if anybody genuinely back home thought England would win it but there was that giddy excitement that 
this was an England team that nobody was prepared for. I think it's probably the way to describe it. That, as you've mentioned, the, the England side, like right up until probably the last of the second last qualifying, Joe Hart was still the keeper. Um, there was still lots of bits and pieces around it that it just it didn't necessarily feel like a progressive or exciting England team. And then they showed up to the World Cup. They had you had fun. Um, I think walloping Panama helped to get everybody a bit giddy. Um, and then after that, there was just there was a the, and the penalty shootout win. They were the two. The, the Panama thumping like the England don't do routine victories in, in World Cups, and they certainly don't have game teams dead and buried by half time. And secondly, they don't win penalty shootouts. And that was it. Was it kind of it changed a lot of con, uh, assumptions that people made about the England side, and that helped. So there was a, a giddiness, and there was still a chance. And the Croatia semi-final could have went a different way and could have got the final and and then all bets would have been off so it it was fun to be around um i'm pleased england didn't win um but it was it it was fun um to be kind of in that that uh buzz and and get kind of uh watch people get really really giddy about it it felt like a really largely pressure free tournament once it got going and i think the panama game really did help that because if for no other reason than it put us into the second round um, there were positives in the Tunisia game, huge positives in the Panama game Belgium I think we'll probably all look back on with slightly different viewpoints really as England supporters over the years to come because we all had a view on what we should do going into it we all had a view on what it meant coming out of it and then the way the tournament went it, it kind of flipped people's views on how it all went and um, the Colombia game for me was the the high point. Sweden was a piece of piss, um, and then to be honest, when we got up against teams that were better than us, they beat us. And there's not a great deal of shame in that for an England team mm. that has a history of losing games that it shouldn't lose and not being able to get over hurdles that it should be managing fairly easily. And we can't take for granted that we're going to beat Tunisia. We can't take for granted that we're going to hammer Panama we can't take for granted that we're going to win penalty shootouts or beat Sweden. And we kind of had an England team for once that, that expanded to to its limits. And for me, that plus likeable team plus such good signs for the future made for a very good World Cup. And it was a World Cup where we were just able to just enjoy it. You know, the group was negotiated with ease. Um Colombia gave us that little bit of tension that we just needed to really take it on to the next level as a as a community, um, and then a quarter final against opposition that we should beat was handled very professionally. It put us into a semi final, and basically once you're in the semi final as England supporters, that's it. You're on cloud nine, and whatever happens happens. And I think um, with all due respect to to Croatia, whoever played France in that final was going to ship some goals I think and, and very possibly England wouldn't have scored the ones that, that Croatia did uh, third versus fourth Dan asked uh, no no not at all it's uh, nonsense uh, it, I was actually a little bit not annoyed because it did. I, I honestly didn't care about it I did watch it but I didn't really care about it I was a bit. I was certainly surprised that both teams played full strength teams and therefore gave the impression they wanted to finish third because I'm surprised they really did. 
Uh, no, it's a nonsense to me, an absolute farce. I think the one thing I would say is, I think what I consider England's high point now, um, which was uh, beating Colombia on penalties. I think in the future, and getting past that psychological hurdle, having been behind on penalties particularly, um, in the future, uh, maybe even in six months' time, I think I'll change my mind and see that the best bit of that tournament was not the high point emotionally, but was just brushing aside a quarter-final as if it wasn't there. Um, because that, that was the most, other than winning on penalties perhaps, you might say, that was the most un-England bit of the tournament, I think. Uh, meeting an opposition who we have struggled against in the past for what that's worth and just 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 battering them aside was great and actually it, it didn't give that emotional high that we were all on because it was so easy Dave these were um, experience after experience that a young squad will take on in two and four years and, and be all the better for yeah absolutely it was I, I sent a tweet uh, after the Sweden game you know the They've done things in this tournament that England don't do. Battering a minnow, you know, sidestepping a group with absolutely no issue, dealing with a knockout game in the fashion they did against Columbia, uh, against Sweden, getting down and dirty, to be honest with you, against Colombia when they were doing the same to us. It was it was great. And that, that semi-final defeat, we don't know what's to come in the future, but there is a world where that, semi-final defeat is the making of of the core of this young team and I think what shouldn't be underestimated is that uh, lots of lots of teams go out of the tournament and obviously there's a raft of retirements on the back of it no international retirements on the back of England's campaign most of these players are going to get several more caps to say the very least barring probably Phil Jones and Danny Welbeck and we've got players that we were missing because of injury to come back so you know Oxay chamberlain I think would have made a huge difference potentially to to a couple of games and we've also we know about the youngsters I'm sick of banging on about it but you get a sort of Sancho in that front three you get a Foden there as a creative point you get a Mason Mount in there as a general you know goal scoring midfielder you get other people coming through the, the future is undeniably bright and the you know, Dan wrote thousands of words through the tournament and a lot of them were on the subject of it's coming home and how it's coming home was not about winning the World Cup. It was merely about reclaiming some positivity around being an England fan, around being an England supporter. And that was important because we all fell a little bit in love with England again, didn't we? And, I think, the, yeah, we you know, the Iceland defeat wasn't the moment we all gave up on them. The Iceland defeat was the culmination of a decade's worth of underachievement and watching the same old players doing the same old things and getting the same old results, you know? Sorry, Drew. I was was going to say, I think England's next game, which I think is Spain at Wembley, um, will will feel very different to the last time. And then you've got... Uh, there's another game, not at Wembley, but there's a game around the stadium, a bit like the Ellen Road friendly played before the tournament. That there will be a groundswell of enthusiasm about this this side and, and this team. That it's um, it's doing things slightly differently. Mm. Ryan, are we losing sight of England's future as biased supporters? I I don't think so. I think there's there's it's not. I think the thing is now is not the time. 
um, for anything critical. Um, the the World Cup is barely over. We've we've had new world champions for less than a week, um, and it's great. I think there is a, a moment to kind of sit back and, and there's probably some things that could have been done a little bit smarter. And there's actually probably things where you where Gaz Southgate could have in the future will have a slightly better squad to to suit the style that he plays and and Ashley Young constantly coming back into it onto his right foot on balance the team um, and, and that would need to be corrected or there needs to be a left footer somewhere in that um, team because I think it was all right footers and there's other little bits that uh, need to be rectified and need to be looked at but um, now isn't the time now I, I think is, is very much the point where England fans should be allowed to fall in love with the national team in the same way that Northern Ireland fans have been allowed to Irish fans, Republic of Ireland, Wales, Scottish fans just are when the team start to do things well. When we went to the Euros, when Wales got to the Euro semi-final, they again weren't necessarily, none of that was ever about any of the teams winning it, it was just about having fun on the national team and feeling enthused. So, by all means, enjoy One day that will happen to you, Scotland fans. <laughs> <laughs> UEFA Nations League. Yeah, well, that is that is partly what the Nations League is built around, isn't it? Mm. Giving no hopers a chance. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, right, let's move on. Uh, Dan, question two. Did the right team win mm. the World Cup? Yeah, I think it probably did. Uh, this is a, probably the hardest question to judge immediately after the event, but there's no doubt that France were the strongest team in the competition. Um, we all became very transfixed by England and for that matter Croatia's run to the semi-final and final respectively but um, France beat difficult teams they beat yes an understrength Argentina but they still beat Argentina um, they beat Uruguay who were one of the best teams in the tournament until that point I think um, they beat Belgium side in a game I'll talk about later so I won't say anything more on um, and they beat a Croatia team who um, grew into the tournament and looked to have an incredible grit and determination. I think in each of those games there are caveats to the team they were playing against, uh, namely that Argentina were a bit of a you know a bit of a shit show. Uh, Uruguay were missing Edison Cavani. Um, Belgium kind of felt peaked against Brazil in winning that game, and that was their almost their final. Uh, and then Croatia were kind of half-knackered after winning three games in extra time. But France did it in third gear, to my mind. So, yeah, I, th- I think the best team probably did win. Dave, it was uh, a Didier Deschamps performance that we weren't expecting. Ish. <laughs> Ish. <laughs> he didn't. He never really solved all the questions that were being asked before the tournament if i if, to my mind he's the problem is he's got such an uber talented pool of players to to pick from it's very difficult it's it's football at that level becomes like doing a jigsaw rather than anything else and he sort of by the time he got to the final, he sort of had a core of eight players and was still playing round with the others. And I think, 
I, well, I'll just come out and say it. I, I, don't get me wrong. I think the best team won this tournament. The only other team I could make even a slight case for was Belgium, and I think they were out. That uh, you know they were beaten by the team that went on to win. So I don't think you can make that case realistically. But this France squad with a good manager, because Deschamps. I'm sorry. I, I still, I, I'm still not with him. I'm still not there with him. Would be absolutely frightening. It really, really would. But there were some really odd decisions in this tournament from Deschamps, weren't they? I mean, what was it? Matuidi played as a a wing back at one point, and just some really mm-hmm. odd trying to sort of he, crowbar he players also, in. He, he, it's weird in that he obviously gets the best out of that team with Giroud in it, but and it worked for them. They looked better when he was there than when he wasn't, but. It's not a huge leap to think that a, a coach could come in and make that team better without Giro in there by finding a different way, is it? No, and they. I mean, this is this is an incredible thing to say, but even if you put Bobby Martinez in charge of that squad because of the way he sets his attack up, I honestly think you'd get more of a tune out of the the sort of front four, which is an extraordinary thing to say because I don't think Martinez is a very good manager either. So, I know he's won the World Cup. I know all circumstantial evidence is to the to the contrary, but I'm still not. I mean, put Zidane in charge of that French side, and I think they would have marched to that fi- that final, and then absolutely mm. strolled through it against Croatia, and it would have been four or five nil. I I genuinely do, but Danny's exactly right in that. I, I think the most impressive part of it for me was the way they almost sort of swept. Uruguay side who were not only are they a sort of very capable team they were a team who were all playing a little bit above themselves as well they were playing excellently and that game it, it I mean it was sort of England v Sweden-esque in the way that France just sort of swatted them aside really there was never ever a danger of Uruguay winning that game and when it came to the Belgian game, you had all that that first half an hour where the the quality was so high. But even then, I just fancied. I never thought France weren't going to win that game, so I I can't make a case against them winning it. Put it that way. I don't think genuinely there's anybody else in the conversation. France were pre-tournament favourites on the strength of the individual abilities that they had across the squad and beyond the squad. Um. And as the tournament wore on, more and more of those players started to live up to that. Back end of the tournament, Paul Pogba was exceptional. And nobody in history has ever looked so good with that trophy. <laughs> he looks like he gave birth to it. It's incredible. Um, in probably the quarterfinals and semifinals, Kante was extraordinary. Um, a lot of the back line, I, I thought Rafa Varane was brilliant from start to finish in this tournament. I know he's, he's, he's had a few pelters for the final, funnily enough, and you, I don't you've, agree with those. You fell a bit in love with Varane, didn't you, Chris, in this tournament? Thank you, just, you, you, as you watch a tournament, you pick out the players who just seem to be dealing with everything every time the ball comes mm. near them. Um, and over two years since the Euros of watching a team, you don't necessarily pick up on that. But the intensity and the concentration involved in a World Cup tournament where you're watching seven games of a player within the space of a month, you really start to see which ones are just finding everything easy. 
and I thought he was he was brilliant. And then you've got um, Pavard as well. He's he's you know made made a name for himself outside the Bundesliga, um, not least because of of um, what he did against Argentina, which I'm sure we'll get a mention later on. But it just felt like when you got into the final, you had a team who were favourites because of the two sides of the draw. I would argue that was full of big name, big game players. And they lived up to it. And the the youngest of them is going to be quite something. Uh, any <laughs> doubts about where Mbappe's going were just disintegrated by his performance this World Cup. He's already won the World Cup, so there's that argument gone for the next 20 years. Um, and he stood up and stood out from even his teammates on occasion. Certainly the Argentina game, I would say, and, and parts of the final as well. None of this can be said about Croatia. None of it really can be said about Belgium. They, I, I think, Dan, you're absolutely right. They peaked in the quarterfinal. It was a fabulous performance, but that mm. was the end of them, really. Um, and, you know, France struggled a little bit early on that that game against Australia never really felt like it wasn't going to be a win. The Denmark game, the less we say about that, the better. Um, but the thing that really prevents me from thinking Belgium are in this conversation is the Japan game, where they very easily could have been beaten and were second best for parts of it um, against a decent Japan team, but not a brilliant one. Um, and I, I think to argue that the team that should have won would come out of the bottom half of this draw um, is a little bit silly. For me, it's France all day. It is, as you say, it's very soon after the tournament. But I think by the time we got halfway through the final, we finally had an outstanding team. And I don't think we really did up until that point necessarily. Ryan? Yeah, I don't think I can disagree with too much of this. I think Croatia peaked uh, in the group stages when they beat Argentina 3-0. And um, had children there about. But yeah, I... I'd be reluctant to say a team that went through on penalties, penalties, and after extra time um, could be described as the, the standard team of the competition. Uh, if Belgium had won the semi-final, um, I wouldn't necessarily have, have begrudged them going on to win it and, and not saying they were very good. I think the uh, Lukaku, who's dummy, um, makes in that uh, round of last six, round of sixteen uh, makes up for anything that they may have failed up to that point. Just the the balls on the man were incredible, um, and yeah. And other than that, I think it was you know um, yeah, pretty much France tournament. I think the the big names all flattered to deceive in parts. Um, France had their moments, and and as you said, that that opening game uh, they looked really good, and and without Giroud, they kind where they were just about six inches from clicking and, and then when Juru come on it, it kind of made sense that they had somebody to hold the ball up and, and I think that's why it worked uh, but yeah there was there was nobody else where I felt um, begrudged that they, they didn't go on win. Dave what what are Croatia? They are I when I was doing their preview I saw quite a bit of Croatia in qualifying and they were they were badly managed for most of their qualifying campaign and then they changed managers just before the playoff, and they got through. And they are a, they are a squad where 
I often talk about this thing where, you know, like the talent gap between the best and the worst in the squad, they they have some incredibly talented individuals, Croatia, but the sort of mean across the whole squad is, is pretty high too. Plus, I think what showed was another, without, without blowing my own trumpet, he said before blowing his own trumpet, at the other point I raised is their their bench and their depth when you actually looked at it was as good as as pretty much anyone barring France in this tournament they had some real difference makers to bring into that side when other players weren't playing well but they they were outstanding against Argentina they were absolutely brilliant and then I know there was a lot of talk about when are they going to run out of legs and all that sort of thing when they got into the knockouts but you're dealing with players and a collective that hadn't been in that situation before either. A bit, you know, a bit like England, and they were, you know, they were clinging on. They were clinging on and getting through by just doing anything they could to get themselves over the over the line. And I, I think that's admirable. But also like England, the minute they came up against a better side, they they lost you know and what was interesting in that final was obviously Croatia having an awful lot of possession and carving out some chances first half but France just had the quality just just in the the little moments in the game and and the difference makers and the dust hasn't settled yet you know we're we're so soon after the tournament but there's there's a has I mean Dan will probably know has anybody retired from that squad yet Dan uh only Adil Rami I think uh, no, the Croatia squad. Oh, the Croatian squad. Uh, no, there was talk of Korluka, but I don't think he's gone yet. Mm. Because with the without sort of going too deeply into the political situation and what have you, I know there's sort of a, a lot of adrenaline running through players' minds still at the moment because they got to the final. But I I have a feeling in the next sort of six to twelve months that a, a good chunk of that squad is is gonna quietly walk away from international football so it also felt a little bit it's going to be you know it'll be difficult for Modric to play from prison yeah well this is the thing this is the thing and it's not you know they may have been able to go back and had the sort of street parades and everything else on the back of the final but again without getting into the nuts and bolts of it because it's just really boring even that has been tinged with controversy and politics have been thrown into it and it just so so what Croatia are at the moment is just a team I think who just knew this was their probably their last roll of the dice with this group of the players to try and do something and they I mean they did they did magnificently didn't they I mean we can't we can't take the achievement away from them but they did you know there are a couple of games particularly that Russia game where they were you know they they dragged themselves over the line rather than hop skipped and jumped over it didn't they question three is coming to you Ryan what was your favorite match of the tournament um <clears throat> so my favorite match of the tournament was uh Germany nil Mexico won um yeah it, what it, a game it came it came at a weird point in the weekend where um Mrs. K was away, um, and I'd basically bathed myself in football for 48 hours. That was seven-game um, weekend, wasn't it? Yeah. That was seven-game yeah. weekend, yeah. It was opening weekend, so we'd seen um, Group A, I, I think it was it was on the Sunday mid-afternoon, maybe? Yeah, it was. Um, and uh, it was kind of, it was a weird moment where 
there was starting to get this. There was a little bit of chatter about how the World Cup was all about European and, and South American teams, and everybody else couldn't quite hack it. Uh, Costa Rica had played Serbia early in the day and looked not so good. Nigeria had looked awful um, against Croatia on the Saturday night. Iceland had held Argentina to kind of prove that all the European sides deserved to be there. Um, and Australia hadn't been great shakes against France. Um, and there was just a little bit of a, a swelling of going, what's the point? Why Why do we want to? Exp- why do FIFA want to expand the World Cup? And when they expand the World Cup, why are they introducing more teams from around the world rather than European? Completely forgetting, of course, that it is a World Cup and you need teams from everywhere. And it's just much more fun than you know um, having as many teams as possible from various different confederations there. And so Mexico stepped up and gave Germany a bloody nose and it was brilliant. Um, Herving Lozano, who was one of the 100 that I watched for a couple of years, scored, which made it all the sweeter. Germany, I assumed at the time, would back um, pretty comfortably and, and still get through the group and, and it was probably the bloody nose they needed um, having had 20 odd attempts on goal and, and quite a few on target although none particularly brilliant there was a couple where you thought they could score but it was just it was such a good counter punching performance from Mexico um, it was the wake up call that I assumed that the, the world champions needed to kind of go look you're not going to get through the, the groups as easily as you expected and, and nobody's necessarily going to lie down for you because you're the reigning champion um, and yeah it was it was the perfect antidote to the the swelling of, of social media and, and the um, the chatter that started on live blogs and, and everything that was reading that um, North American or African or Asian sides weren't adding anything to the tournament when that was completely nonsense and, and Mexico were, were good, were good for their win uh, defended well, attacked brilliantly when they got chances, and Lozano's goal was was supremely well taken. Um, and he is a, a really fun player, well, as as Dave knows particularly well. Mm. Those counter attacks were were brilliant. I was hoping to see mm. more of Mexico in the tournament than we did for that for that reason, particularly later on when they would have teams that they might be able to do some counter attacking against. Um, yeah, they, they had a, a bit too early for my liking. They had a very Mexico tournament um, where they get through the groups and they go out in the last 16, which they have yep. uh, been repeated and repeated. So, yeah, it, it, it's just what, what they do, um, which is a shame, uh, as you say. Like, And they, I think they probably deserve to lose to Brazil, but them trying to counter-attack against Belgium would have been really good um, because Bobby Martinez wouldn't have been able to handle that. That Mexico yeah. performance did come out of the blue as well, though, because, I mean, they, they did not qualify particularly well and you know their last couple of home games the crowd had spent half the game booing the manager and so it really it really did come as a bolt out of blue and I think it does serve to show how much you love a World Cup that game really doesn't it because you sit down with not with very little expectation but you sit down as you do with every game not knowing what's going to happen and I mean it was a stone cold classic wasn't it in the end (laughs) Well, it was uh, yeah. The, I remember the the other thing that uh, it sprung to my mind was that it was it was a really good game, but it was in the lose Nicky, um, and it was the first Sunday of the tournament. So a lot of the pre again pre match chatter and, and stuff, and it even got a mention on the telly was oh Germany running out of lose Nicky. Will they be you know they'll be looking to be back here a month from today because it was, um, and it, so there was just that assumption that. Germany were going to be able to kind of pick up where they left off and, and sweep this Mexico team aside and, and there was some on that Germany was supposed to stroll through the, what wasn't a particularly hard group 
Um, so everything came together nicely. Uh, yeah, just really good fun. I made bad decisions that day because after four four games Saturday, I then went out for lunch on the Sunday and I went full mm-hmm. likely lads and I watched those three games back to back without any half times and without any breaks in between and I kid you not I was fully square eyed by the end of the day <laughs> I never wanted to watch football again but that game in the middle made it all worth it and not knowing what had happened was um, definitely the right thing to do but that was tiring uh, Dan I went for France Belgium uh, which wasn't the most I don't think the most exciting game in the tournament but um, I wrote afterwards that even though it was played before Croatia England it felt like the final. Uh, it felt like the winner of that game would win the final, and it felt like that France, the two stars were completely opposite. Um, France were all about soaking up possession and doing them. They they had less possession in each knockout game as they played it, as they kind of got more and more entrenched in the Deschamps style. Belgium type came out to play football exactly as against Brazil, but basically they found France a better defensive unit. Uh, it was Varane's masterpiece. It was N'Golo Kante's masterpiece, who I believe, for all the Mbappé and Griezmann talk, I think were France's two best players in the tournament. Uh, and it, yeah, it was just a sensational occasion. I think World Cups need, for all the, for all the joy in England having a relatively gentle run to the semi-finals, knockout tournaments need big head-to-head matches late on. And it kind of felt like Brazil-Belgium might be the biggest. And then France-Belgium just came and went, right, this is two going toe-to-toe, playing their styles and going at it. Yes, it was only 1-0 and therefore history might look back on it and think, well, boring knockout game. But I thought it was sensational. Yeah, the quality was really high, entertainment value really high. Um, Hopefully we can all remember it in a few years to come as as the the quality that it was because it was a very exciting game, I thought. And Belgium fell just short. Um, to what I think was the best team in the competition, but totally worth watching. Um, and f- for me, as I assume it does for you, Dan, it's, it, it just about shades the Brazil game. Um, and really those two, maybe Uruguay-France, those were the games mm. that really made it feel like I a think, tournament. Yeah. I'm Someone else probably talk about that game. For me, what set the France-Belgium one apart is that the Brazil-Belgium, this is not a criticism, it, it was great fun, it was chaos. Whereas France-Belgium felt much more like tournament football uh, a little bit of chess and also you know a little bit of um, heavy hitting sort of slugging towards the end as Belgium tried to break them down David Hartrick England Columbia because uh, like I mentioned on a on another podcast we may or may have not recorded last night that being an England fan you're England sporting career is a career in moments, so it's very easy for other fans around the world to parody us because we cling on to the smaller victories because we don't have any larger ones. That game, the first half had a real sort of ebb and flow. The second half was okay. Um, I mean, like I say, we had to get down in the trenches a bit, but the long and short of it was it came down to the penalty shootout, which was... You know, in, in like in terms of my football loving life was, I mean that's that's as tense as it gets for me. And uh, you know, I was stood stood in a pub with several like-minded people, convinced we were about to lose. And 
as the penalties went on, you you started to realise the difference in this England team, and you know, complete faith in Kane putting his away. But then Marcus Rashford just steps up and tries to take the maker's name off the ball. I mean, he hit it so hard; it was incredible. And then things started to swing. You know, Henderson misses his, but then they miss theirs, and Trippier, you know, absolutely roofs it, etc. And then Eric Dyer scores at the very end when I was still convinced we may well find a, a find a way not to do it, a find a way to to lose, to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, and it was it was just an incredible feeling, and you know when when we sort of when we asked these questions we realised they're subjective. There were there were way more higher quality games, you know, the Spain Portugal, the two you've talked about. The first half an hour of that, that France Belgian game that Dan's just talked about was as, as as good as football gets really in terms of quality. It was a really good tournament littered with great games, but that moment for me, that that whole penalty shootout and then the five minutes after are something that will live with me till the day I die. And, you know, as pathetic as it was, Chris, as you know, we recorded a podcast the very next day and I had literally shouted myself hoarse. I, <laughs> I could not, I couldn't talk. And, you know, that's pathetic. But that, just for a moment, football was good. <laughs> and it still is good, don't get me wrong. But just in that moment, everything was just, perfect really everything was right with the world and the other you, the other thing you've got to say cue people taking the mic like the rest of you have had lots of glory to celebrate and Wembley finals and various other things as a Brighton fan we you've sort of semi lived off scraps so when you get a moment like that with the England team and the whole pub is united and it just goes mad it's just incredible absolutely incredible so yeah not the greatest game of all time, but certainly a game I will never forget for the rest of my life. Yeah, same. Um, seven game weekend needed a spark, and it got it on the Friday night. And I'm going for Portugal three, Spain three, um, which felt like the night that the World Cup came to life. And thankfully, it was very early on, and it was a, just a real roller coaster. Um, it had real highlights. The Nacho goal was a real highlight. Um, Ooh, was it? We had the De Gea error as well, um, mm. which, you know, feel for him, but it's all entertainment. Isn't it? Um, but finally, at the age of about 47, I finally fell for Ronaldo. <laughs> because I thought he was sensational against Spain. And he, he got Portugal that point. Not necessarily on his own, but he had to add the finishing touches. Penalty whatever um, obviously got a bit of luck with the second but that free kick at the end to make it 3-3 at the end of a really gripping football match where you know Costa got a couple of goals as well it was Beckham against Greece mm. there wasn't a, a moment when that wasn't going in and this is Ronaldo who doesn't score free kicks as well but you just knew everybody knew and it did exactly what you expected it to do and yet I was still running around the living room as if I hadn't been expecting it. Um, so for it to come so early and to really light up the World Cup and really get it going and to have that amazing individual performance, the free kick I think is a brilliant goal as well. 
um, and to have so many talking points in it. Another stunning goal for Spain. It just had everything, apart yeah. from red cards, but we don't really do red cards anymore. So That Nacho goal, though, I mean, my penis was straight after that, you know, very straight. The way he hit that, with as straight as it gets, yeah, as straight as it, you, you could have, you could have ruled, days. could have ruled lines with it. It, it, that it just sensational. I mean, I think somebody has got is going to talk about the Pavard goal, aren't they? But that now we are so blessed to be living in the era of top quality camera angles, and a couple of goals in this tournament have just so enhanced by having the perfect camera camera angle, and that. That angle behind Nacho's strike, where you just see it not move at all, just straight as an oh, getting a bit of a straight <clears> penis <throat> again, lads. Hold that thought. Right, question four is favourite goal. Um, I'm going to go first, and then we'll we'll come back, and I'll run through a few that we miss out. I'm going for a bit of a hidden gem, um, purely because of my personal enjoyment of it, um, and the fact that three great goals are, are going to follow, and then we'll list the rest anyway. Uh, but I've chosen Ante Rebic for Croatia against Argentina way back in the group stage. Um, just because it was such a brutal finish. Uh, it was the one that, that came from the Caballero mistake, the sliced attempt at a chipped pass um, out to the right flank. And it just sat up for, for Rebic. And the, the process of thought that leads to the finish being a thumping volley into the top corner, um, you know, almost in the back of the net before the goalkeeper's even realised what he's done, um, is kind of both instinctive and a bit showboaty. Uh, and just the, the sheer brutality of it was what made it for me. There is nothing better than having a ball sit up like that, a goalkeeper stranded and just going, I'm going to blast it. And he did. Stuffed <laughs> it in the top corner. Cracking goal for entertainment. Gave them that win against Argentina as well. You know, that was what, what really opened up what became a, a quite easy routine second half for, for Croatia in that match. Um, and it came from a goalkeeper error. And Dave, you've, you have views on goalkeepers and I don't disagree with them. Yeah, scum. Should be punished. Uh, Ryan, your favourite goal? Um, I'm going to take you way back to the opening game. Um, And Denis Cherishev's audacious uh, little... It's not a flick. It's like a... Not a nudge. But his uh, dink. His little dink over two sliding defenders and then lashing into the... Bergkamp-esque. I like... Yeah, I like I, ju- I like players that do things that make them look silly if it doesn't come off. Um, and it, so, in an alternative timeline, he tries that and doesn't quite get it, or the ball either bobbles over his foot, or it hits the boot of a defender, and Russia then plod on to a struggling, battling one or two one win or a one one draw or whatever. Um instead of ramping rampaging on to a final win in the opening game, which you know, was was great and regardless of uh whatever alleged drugs they took to run further than everybody else or, or compete harder or anything like that, it was nice to see the host nation kind of get the, the home fans all excited. Um and that helped with a, a final dropping. So Cherishev's goal for me. Um he just he did something that I can't imagine having 
having the balls to do um and, and similarly why I, I like a lot of other goals in, in this including um the Lukaku goal which uh, I'm hoping and presuming somebody else is, is talking about but yeah Cherish have little dink over two slime defenders lashed it into the roof of the net second wasn't Brilliant. bad either uh, yeah yeah there was yeah yeah fine we can have that as well two good goals but and he was uh he wasn't he didn't start um so brought on in the, the first half for Dave's mate who always gets injured oh, that's right he came for Jogoyev didn't he mm. yeah wow, that seems like a long time ago Dan uh, I kind of changed my mind I was going to go for uh, the longest one-two in football Cavani to Suarez back to Cavani for a, his face header <laughs> uh, which is a sensational goal but it I'm going to go for I'm going to go for the Belgian counter-attacking goal just because, A, I prefer a team goal if I'm talking about my favourite because it feels like it has far more moving parts that can go wrong. Um, and everything about that goal was perfect. From the throw-out from Courtois, De Bruyne's run, uh, Lukaku's... So, De Bruyne's run with the ball, Lukaku's double run without the ball to take multiple defenders out of play. The ball then into him was perfect. Uh, and his dummy was just sensational. Um there are a couple of, in fact, there's Belgium three-star attacking players in Lukaku, De Bruyne and Hazard, who I think would probably be better individual players if they were more selfish. Um, but because they all play together in the same international team, it kind of works that they're, they're selfless. And that goal showed that in spades because um, the, just the presence of mind to see Chadley behind him or to listen to Chadley's call when everything around is kind of shaking at that, that point... And also the the selflessness to think, I've missed a chance, I've missed an easy header before this, that if we go out of the tournament, people will remember. And yet to still dummy it and leave it for a teammate is incredible, really. Um, I obviously am biased towards Akaku because I think he's great. Um, but that was just stunning, stunning. The best non-touch of the tournament. <laughs> Proper goal. Yeah. Dave, what you got? Um, well, I, I said before, I'm, I'm going to go for... Messi's goal and I mean it was a great goal great control great shot but I don't like him so I'm not going for that um, even though the context of it was great as well um, I think Pavard's the sort of training ground nature of Pavard's was just brilliant because that's to, to hit the ball like that is something you can do a hundred times and even as an extremely good professional footballer you will only catch it that way and get it to go in like that once in a blue moon it it really was sensational and it came at a game we haven't mentioned yet have we france argentina which was a sensational game wasn't it i mean as as an opening uh, what was it opening quarter was it quarter final no opening knockout game wasn't Plus it 16, yeah. was just sensational just un- unbelievable but if we it if we're talking about my actual favourite goal, I think I'd, I'd have to go Musa against Iceland. It's just a great, mm. great finish from a player who, like, he shows it in patches, but he's never, let's be honest, he, he never put a, a proper run of form together um, at, at Leicester or I forget where he was before that. But just a wonderful piece of, like, instinctive finishing, which... Uh, so yeah, so official answer Messi, but I don't like him. So take anyone from that list I've just talked about. Yeah, and there is a list as well. I I, I really think that that Pavard was the the best goal of the tournament. 
Um, but there are loads of competing goals, some of the ones we've mentioned and, and uh, loads more as well. Cherishev, um got another one against uh, Croatia, which I thought was brilliant. I, uh, Gary Neville ripped into the keeper there, didn't he? Did you see his yeah, analysis the, the of the pace it? on that shot when you first watch it there in real time? Yeah, Neville was fuming though, wasn't he? I, I semi-see mm. his point as well, to be honest. A little bit, but it was... It was a big old swinging shot away from him, and then came back and made it look a bit silly. But I know, but I'm, just I'm, move. I'm leaning towards <laughs> a quality finish myself. Mm. I'd just like my keepers to move. <laughs> there is that. Uh, Crows, are we having that? Yeah. Oh, I forgot. I forgot the Germans were at this World Cup. <laughs> Uh, another free kick, Ronaldo against Spain. We've already mentioned, definitely up there for me. Uh, Jesse Lingard against Panama. Mm. Yeah, superb. Yeah, Nacho right up there. Um, Cavani's other goal down against uh, Portugal. Yeah, good as well. So I think it's a, a it's a lovely finish, but um, opening his body up like a yeah. dream. I think, in fairness, if if the first goal had come off his forehead, it would have put this one in the shade. Um, but still a great goal. Um, Inui for Japan against Belgium mm. I rated mm. mm-hmm. uh, and the the long lost forgotten original goal of World Cup 2018 uh, Karezma against Iran yeah King of the mm. Traveller actually so pulls many. one off I'm looking forward to in about a week just being able to go back and just watch every single goal again because someone will find me a YouTube compilation at some point well, I, I, we missed. I bang on about Mexico 86 and that golden top 20 golden goals compilation the, 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 genuinely the top 20 from this tournament will be quality wise surpass it for me honestly think that we've probably missed a few as well but we'll move on and we'll, we'll just let people have a go at us afterwards question 5 uh, come to you first Dave what is the one thing you will never forget about Russia 2018 um, listen we've spoken about England etc and there's there's no way I'm ever going to forget particularly that Columbia moment that I've already talked about but if if you're sort of talking about an a, away from England then I think other people will probably talk about VAR etc and all that sort of bit what I remember from this tournament is just how much I enjoyed it just how many genuinely good games there were and I got to see all but about two, really, and both of them I ended up watching the highlights of. And there was just so few bum notes, it was untrue. You know, the, that France uh, versus Denmark game was such an anomaly in a tournament where every game seemed to have a narrative or a at least half an hour in it where that you just couldn't take your eyes off. You just You just couldn't come away from it. And I think... As much as it sort of started with a bang with that 5-0, it really was that Friday night, that, that 3 all game that really kicked things off properly. And it was just became... It was just so much fun. <laughs> you know, there were just so many games that were just a ridiculous amount of fun. And at the, the 2014 World Cup, the group stages were absolutely great. And then it trailed off a bit in the knockouts and we had some... We had a little bit of seesaw football and it... it, it Whereas this one, it sort of sustained it all the way to the end. There was, like I say, every single game, there was, at one point or another, I was completely gripped by it. You know, not always for for the whole 90 minutes, but for for many, 
you know, it, that was the case. And I'm a bit like Dan's just said, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the dust settling a bit and being able to go back and revisit some of this tournament and think about things I've forgotten. Because at the moment, it's still completely fresh and the wall chart's still on the wall. And it will be nice next summer to sit down and actually review this and go over this and enjoy some of this again. I'll go now because I'll be quick. I've got a couple. Um, firstly, a lot of people talking a lot of bollocks about three lions, but really it's England. Um, how could it not be? I refuse to acknowledge any other answer. Um, the worst World Cup ever this is going to be, and it's the worst England squad ever as well. Uh, and that, folks, is what we call bullshit. Uh, Brian? Uh, this is the first World Cup where I've become acutely aware of World Cups, Phil, to steal um, something from one of Dan's tweets. That, uh, the, were, the country that you see during a World Cup, the, the host country is not that country normally. Um, and yeah, it just became in, incredibly obvious and, and just a bit weird. Um, so yeah, that was that was slightly strange. Um, that, the the other one, uh, Simon Persaw, I uh, fell a little bit back in love with football um, after falling out with it, which is ridiculous for somebody who does a, a football podcast, but I've not had the same enthusiasm and it could just be World Cup and it's a bit like a holiday romance that I've just had a month of every day thinking it's the best thing ever and I'll probably be on a, a bit of a, a come down in a, in a couple of weeks but yeah that was uh, it, it's been a pretty amazing 31 days and it was nice to uh, actually relish everything about football the coverage that follows it the writing around it all of that um, I lapped it up um, for the first time in it probably be about two years which was you know brilliant Dan if you can take yourself away from tweeting for a second you can have the floor for the <laughs> final part of the final question I my my honest answer is my heart answer is England um, and winning a penalty shootout which even if anything goes tits up from here uh, in fact if, if everything goes tits up from here then that will be uh, the defining high point of this England generation, there's no doubt. Um, my head answer, as someone that was working on the tournament, um, is VAR. Um, uh, as more tournaments pass and VAR becomes the norm, it that feeling will probably wear off because it will all kind of go into a mush. But go, going from working predominantly on a league in the Premier League that doesn't have it to going to a World Cup that did have it, um, because I was working on it, was an absolutely huge change. Uh, it genuinely changes the way you write about things, about how you think about things, how you react to goals being scored. So that was the lingering memory for me, um, which is an incredible. Seems an incredibly sad thing to say, but obviously I loved it and I loved the football. But that was the that was the one thing that will stand out. Yeah, let's leave that for another show. I think mm. definitely not one for this. I was I was sort of pleased by how little it impacted the overall enjoyment that could be taken from the competition. But so, we can, yeah, we can yeah, pick the bones I, out of it another time. Of course. It was, it, I will say, I was glad that until the final, it didn't really seem to play a part in the knockout stages. Mm, yeah. An interesting point in its own right. Well, we'll leave it there and come back to that one, I think. Um, you can find us on Twitter at FTBL5spod. We're also on Facebook. Um, and you can email us at show at football5spodcast.com. Uh, and Dave and I have an England podcast that we're going to plug again um, and you can follow it brilliantly on Twitter at England Podcast um, 
we're going to probably get another couple in during the summer and then be back proper uh, come mid-August to welcome back the Premier League and everything that goes with that and, and the rest of Europe too. So enjoy the rest of your summer. We will be back. See you later. See you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.